This week, Unity Windstream position over lease. Judge Drain approves Sears DS. White Star Petroleum files for Chapter 11. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York. And I'm Karen Lund. Later this episode, Mark Fisher, Director of Credit Research, and Harvard Jong, Senior Reporter, run through middle market credits. They'll discuss MoneyGram, Highridge Brands, Pier One, Fusion Connect, and Premier Global. It's Sunday, June 2nd. Unity CFO Mark Wallace said during the Cowan Investor Conference on Wednesday that a, quote, unilateral rent cut to its lease with Windstream is not a, quote, acceptable outcome for Unity. However, Wallace did suggest a couple of paths forward he said would be beneficial to both companies. The comments came after Windstream CEO Tony Thomas said that his company is considering all options regarding the lease, including, quote, renegotiation, recharacterization, or unwinding the lease, as well as outright rejection. Wallace called Thomas's comments, quote, public posturing in advance of the negotiations surrounding the lease that Windstream would like to have. Wallace did suggest a couple of potential transactions he said would be, quote, mutually beneficial. One would be for Unity to acquire certain of Windstream's fiber leasehold rights for re-lease. According to Unity, certain fiber is not currently utilized and therefore not generating revenue. Unity also suggested taking back the leasehold rights to which, quote, Windstream currently owns and has exclusive rights, which Unity would then lease to third parties. Another option, Wallace said, is for Unity to begin to purchase certain assets from Windstream. Last weekend, Windstream filed a motion seeking a 270-day extension of their exclusive plan filing date through March 23, 2020, and a 330-day extension of the exclusive solicitation period through May 22, 2020. Absent a further order from the court, the debtor's exclusive plan filing and solicitation periods would expire on June 25th and August 24th of this year, respectively. The debtors also filed a motion seeking to extend the deadline by which the debtors must assume or reject unexpired leases by an additional 90 days. Without an extension, that period would expire on June 25th. The Sears debtors took another step forward in their Chapter 11 cases after Judge Robert Drain approved their disclosure statement last Wednesday. The debtors overcame 13 formal objections and a host of informal objections, announcing that they had resolved all or nearly all by way of inclusion of additional language in the disclosure statement or by pushing some off until confirmation. Ray Schrock of Weil Gottschall Counsel to the Debtors explained to the court that the core of most disputes concerned, quote, what the debtors don't have, money. The judge ultimately determined that the DS contains adequate disclosure, but only after providing the debtors with a heavily marked up document and his thoughts on the record regarding various revisions needed for adequate information. Judge Drain acknowledged that there are, quote, still important differences that still need to be resolved with respect to the plan and noted the validity of some of the confirmation issues raised on the record and in some of the objections. Although all major case parties withdrew their objections to the disclosure statement, ESL, the official committee of unsecured creditors, and others raised various plan confirmation issues on the record. 
notably the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which did not object to the DS and is a party to a proposed settlement under the plan, indicated that the PBGC, quote, does not support the toggle version of the plan. The UCC also voiced serious concerns with respect to issues that, quote, go to the heart of the plan. Among other unresolved issues are the status of the asset purchase agreement between the debtors and ESL Investments affiliate Transform Hold Co. LLC. The debtors filed a supplemental motion on Friday, May 25th, asking the court to compel Transform to perform its obligations under the APA and assume up to $116 million of payables, $83 million of claims, and $35 million of post-closing cash reconciliation amounts. ASL, for its part, on Saturday, May 26th, filed an adversary complaint against the debtors, alleging, quote, a litany of breaches of contract and other wrongs in violation of the APA. Last Tuesday, Oklahoma City-based White Star Petroleum filed for Chapter 11 protection in Delaware. The company, which reported $347 million in pre-petition debt, said in a press release that it would be, quote, exploring strategic alternatives, including the sale of its business as a going concern and the restructuring of its balance sheet. In addition, the release stated that the debtors had received $28.5 million in committed dip financing from its current syndicate of RBL lenders to, quote, bolster liquidity and, quote, fund critical payments that are essential to the debtor's operational viability. As of the petition date, the debtors had no unrestricted cash. The bankruptcy filing, which the debtors attributed to a, quote, liquidity situation caused by a borrowing-based reduction, came on the heels of an involuntary filing the previous Friday in the Western District of Oklahoma by five unsecured creditors. The debtors described this involuntary filing in their press release as having come, quote, without notice to the company, and said that their voluntary case was nonetheless proceeding, quote, as previously planned. In addition, in a letter to the Oklahoma court, the debtors argued that the petitioning creditors may not hold allowable claims, saying that each petitioning creditor had received substantial payments during the 90-day preference period on account of antecedent debts. During a first-day hearing in Delaware on Wednesday, Judge Brendan Shannon deferred to Judge Janice Lloyd of the Oklahoma court as to the final decision regarding venue for the cases. He was responding to Judge Lloyd's order entered Tuesday night, reserving, quote, sole authority to determine the venue in which the Chapter 11 cases should proceed. Judge Shannon also indicated that, per his discussions with Judge Lloyd, any non-essential matters would be held in abeyance pending a status conference before her. More on that status conference in a minute. Judge Shannon granted most of the interim first-day relief sought by the debtors in Delaware, including approval of $15 million in interim availability under the proposed DIP facility. He rejected suggestions from counsel for PPM America, the, quote, single largest unsecured creditor, that interim dip borrowing should be limited to two weeks' worth of expenses. Judge Shannon said that such a limit would place the debtors on a, quote, starvation diet, creating a, quote, recipe for disruption to operations. At the status hearing in Oklahoma on Friday, Judge Lloyd partially denied the debtors' request to lift the court's injunction, barring the debtors from moving forward with their voluntary Chapter 11 cases in Delaware. 
She said she would, however, lift the injunction with respect to three matters. The first one is the debtor's filing of their sale motion to comply with a dip milestone. The second uh, is to permit the U.S. trustee to form an official committee of unsecured creditors. The third is uh, the authorization to seek emergency relief if the need arises from the Delaware court. Frontier Communications announced it has entered into an agreement to sell assets in four states for $1.352 billion in a transaction the company expects to close in one year. The states are Idaho, Montana, Oregon, and Washington. CEO Dan McCarthy said in the release that, quote, the sale of these properties reduces Frontier's debt and strengthens liquidity. However, the release did not provide specific uses of cash from the transaction. According to Reorg Covenants, Frontier can use the proceeds to either rateably repay the term loans and the company's first lien notes, or to fund CapEx. However, Reorg Covenants notes that to the extent that Frontier uses the proceeds to fund CapEx, Frontier could use the cash that it had set aside for CapEx to purchase any of its outstanding debt, given no restrictions under its debt documents. Turning, as always, to Puerto Rico. On Wednesday, the PROMESA Oversight Board said that while it has line-item power over the $9.1 billion Commonwealth General Fund budget it submitted Tuesday evening, it is willing to work with Commonwealth officials to shape a fiscal 2020 spending package, as long as it is compliant with the certified fiscal plan. Governor Ricardo Rosseo and other officials criticized the board's new budget proposal, saying it requires unnecessary austerity measures that could dampen Puerto Rico's economic recovery. Quote, we believe we have that authority. The authority in PROMESA describes a budget. Natalie Juresco, the oversight board's executive director, said in a roundtable with reporters on Tuesday. She continued, it has to be consistent with the certified fiscal plan in terms of the spending level and general right-sizing. We will listen to all and any proposals of the legislature and their priorities. The $9.1 billion general fund budget is $573 million less than the latest fiscal 2020 spending proposal from the Roseo administration. Jurasco explained that the differences in the Oversight Board's budget include $25 million less for the State Elections Commission, $286 million less in contributions to municipalities, and $262 million less for the Education Department, when compared with the, administra- with the administration's proposal. Governor Roseo is expected to give a budget address within the next two weeks. Also on Wednesday, the PROMESA Oversight Board said it referred to the Puerto Rico Justice Secretary and the U.S. Department of Justice the failure of three government entities and 11 municipalities to transfer $4.5 million in employee payroll withholdings to those employees' defined contribution retirement accounts. The board said it and the Retirement Administration have made numerous attempts over the past year to have these entities settle their employee payroll withholding debts. On Thursday evening, bond insurer Ambach filed a motion seeking to proceed with two lawsuits relating to Puerto Rico Infrastructure Financing Authority, or PREFA, bonds. Ambach, which holds and or insures more than $529 million in bonds issued by PREFA, argues that the automatic stay does not apply to the litigation. In the alternative, stay relief is warranted along with adequate protection for its collateral, argues Ambach. The motion addresses two lawsuits. One is the already filed and currently stayed action, 
against the U.S. Department of Treasury and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, in which MBAC seeks an equitable lien on and escrow of the pledged rum taxes before they are transferred to the Commonwealth. The other lawsuit would be a contemplated clawback lawsuit against the Commonwealth in which AMBAC would seek to enforce its lien and, quote, halt the ongoing appropriation of the pledged rum taxes. Other top stories this week were ERA Group shows M&A interest in Bristow Group, working with Millbank Centerview Partners. Judge Montali issues decision concluding PG&E ratepayers do not have a claim for separate representation, will enter order denying turn motion. Teva reaches agreement with the state of Oklahoma to resolve state's opioid-related claims against the company for $85 million. And here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thanks, Karen. Hello, folks. Me again. Let's get right to it. Monday, June 3rd, forbearance expiration for Fusion Connect. Now, who is Fusion Connect, you may be forgiven for wondering. Don't worry, I'm here to help you. They're a provider of cloud services to medium, small, and large enterprises. You're welcome. Also, forbearance expiration for Blackhawk Mining, which, as you may have guessed, is a miner of coal based in Kentucky. Tuesday, June 4th, an RSA and bid procedure hearing for Empire Generating, which I guess generates stuff in the Empire State, and the tender offer and consent solicitation expiration for Talon Energy. Wednesday, June 5th, find one for the lawyers with a UCC standing and exclusivity termination and DS hearing in PHI, a combined plan DS hearing for Fuse Media, Westmoreland Coal, a DS plan sale and settlement hearing, and a DS hearing in Vanguard Natural Resources. And if that's not enough, there's also earnings. This one is from United Natural Foods. Thursday, June 6th, this is, of course, the anniversary of... The Revenue Act of 1932, one of Franklin D. Roosevelt's many gifts to the Republic, it created the first gas tax in this fair land of freedom at a rate of one cent per gallon, which I guess was worth a lot more then than it is now. And of course, not content to rest on his laurels, Mr. Franklin D. Roosevelt, exactly two years later, on the 6th of June, 1934, created the Securities and Exchange Commission. Round of applause. Thank you. That helped immeasurably. Today, though, we will have to content ourselves with earnings from Hovnanian and the expiration of a tender offer from Albertsons. And on Friday, June 7th, an exit financing hearing for Hexion and a fourth quarter call from Cengage. All great fun. Bet you can't wait. I sure can't. And now I'm going to pass it back to Karen, Mark Fisher, and senior reporter Harvard Zhang. Thanks, Jim. Now here are Mark and Harvard with a middle market update. Thanks, Karen. So I'm here again with Harvard Zhang. We are going to talk about some middle market names that we've been following here at Reorg. Uh, we did this segment a quarter ago and uh, going to continue to do it uh, every quarter as Harvard continues to uh, find more and more names to, to look at. So today we are going to focus on MoneyGram, High Ridge Brands, Pier One, Fusion Connect, and Premier Global. Uh, so with that, Harvard, let's get uh, let's get right into it. So MoneyGram, um, you've got some uh, some. New information. I think we talked about this the last time. Um, MoneyGram does a um, 770 million dollars in net debt, 900 million in um, in gross debt, excluding uh, preferred um, uh, excluding preferred stock. Uh, so with that, let's get into it. Uh, what's the latest on MoneyGram? Yes, Mark. So this company uh, is trying to refinance its um, 900 million capital structure. And earlier this month, on uh, MoneyGram announced a uh, 245 million. 
Secondly, a terminal facility that would be used to prepay a portion of its first uh, firstly in terminal. Uh, Beach Point Capital and Carlisle have uh, committed to do the new second lane piece. Uh, and as a closing condition for the second lane facil- facility, the company needs uh, to refinance its uh, first lane revolver and the terminal. And the latest is that uh, sources are telling us that as uh, uh, as of Thursday, uh, May 30th, MoneyGram has not uh, reached the uh, 92.5% um, first lane terminal extension threshold, and consents to the uh, first lane amendment were due on uh, Wednesday, uh, May 29th. Got it. So, um, you know, you said as we spoke about before, um, the reason why this is a pressing issue is the revolver matures this year, term loan uh, in its current form matures next year. So what, um, what's, what's on the table? What are the changes in terms? Yes. So the uh, first lien deal uh, is uh, the MoneyGram is is trying to basically push out the maturity of its uh, 902 million uh, term loan B due 2020 by three years to 2023. Uh, in exchange for extending, first lien lenders are currently offered a, a uh, coupon boost and also a uh, 98.5 on um, OID. The deal also includes a uh, first lien lever- leveraged uh, test and also a on um, 104 change of control premium and uh, would also include a uh, non-call 1, 102, 101 call schedule. Uh, the revolver due in September this year has been extended. Uh, performer of the uh, the transaction, uh, the transaction, corporate level and issuer level ratings are expected to be um, uh, B3, B, single B, and B2, single B, respectively. Uh, the Moody's ratings uh, would carry a negative outlook. Uh, and also CEO Alex Holmes said on uh, May 8th that MoneyGram still expects to uh, return to growth in the uh, second, second half of this year and also in uh, 2020. Great. And all this is from sources in in terms of uh, deal terms and what's been extended, what's not. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, So let's move on. So High Ridge Brands is next, uh, marketer and distributor of personal care products. High Ridge has $514 million of uh, gross debt as of uh, March 31st. What's going on there? So this company uh, is uh, is struggling. Is came, essentially came onto our radar because you know it's struggling because of uh, uh, tightening liquidity and potential um, covenant violation in the uh, third quarter. And I've reviewed a copy of the um, the first quarter report earnings, and uh, we have reported that High Ridge is um, operating under a revol- uh, and under a waiver uh, of the first lien um, net lever- leverage ratio covenant through uh, July fifteenth and possibly through um, August 15th, so essentially through the summer. Um, management does not expect to be uh, in compliance with the uh, the covenant uh, subsequent to the waiver period and warn of uh, inability to continue as a um, going concern. And so essentially, operationally, uh, net sales and EBITDA uh, both were down in the most recent quarter, and High Ridge Brands contributed uh, attributed this to um, uh, lost bar soap sales uh, resulting from uh, capacity constraints at its uh, historically ex- exclusive uh, bar soap manufacturer. And uh, uh, we've uh, also uh, reported uh, our advisors uh, and also 
including uh, the company is working with uh, Deb Voice Plimpton. Um, the company is a uh, CDNR, a portfolio company, and Highridge is working with PJT as financial advisor. Um, term loan agent BMO is working with uh, Winston Strawn as legal advisor and Carl Marks uh, advisors as uh, FA. Uh, the company and agent advisors are um, conducting due uh, diligence. The bondholders are working with David Spoke and Rothschild. Okay, great. And um, you know, we'll see how this one goes. Uh, one thing that you mentioned that stuck out to me was um, those capacity constraints. So we'll see if that's uh, a one-time issue, if that improves, um, and how results uh, go from here. Uh, thanks. So moving along um, is a name that probably a lot of people know, uh, Pier One Imports. Uh, the company has $240 million in debt. Um, you know, of course, it's retail. They sell furniture, tabletops, decorative accessories, uh, you name it, um, in, in the stores. Uh, so what's, what's, what's going on here? A typical retailer um, uh, uh, troubles? Yes, well-known names, and I think it's been pretty well telegraphed. Um, EBITDA has declined for five consecutive years, and you know the company posted negative EBITDA in each of the past three quarters. Uh, Pier One has struggled; on, uh, it's been struggling to attract um, shoppers, and uh, because of you know competition from online retailers, including WeFair and Amazon, and also you know from uh, brick and mortar um, operators, you know such as you know at home, Cost Plus, World. Market, home goods, and uh, home sense. So Q4 uh, was bad. Also, uh, EBITDA uh, swung to a, uh, a loss from a gain uh, a year earlier, and its sales um, uh, dropped 19.5 percent. And actually, an analyst uh, asked um, other companies uh, Q4 earnings. T- Earnings call why the company just you know doesn't just you know file for you know Chapter Eleven bankruptcy protection and deal with leases like um, uh, many of the retailers do, and on this point, CEO Cheryl Batchelder actually said that the company's action plan is compelling, and you know actually secures uh, the future of the business. Um, with that plan, Pier One actually wants to. Um, uh, it expects to uh, recapture about 45 million uh, to uh, 55 million of EBITDA in, in fiscal uh, year 2020. And also in April, after um, S&P Global ratings downgraded um, Pier One uh, because of you know uh, negative EBITDA, uh, high levels of cash burn, and increased potential for you know a bankruptcy filing and restructuring. The company uh, after this, the company issued a press release saying it is not contemplating or nor discussing any uh, debt exchange. And uh, its term loan is not due, you know, in another two years. And we also uh, reported out um, advisors. Uh, the company is working with Kirkland and Ellis, and also Alex Partners. Um, actually, replaced the company replaced its uh, ex CFO Nancy Walsh with um, a managing ed- uh, director from Alex Partners, Deborah uh, Rigger. Paganis, and also terminal lenders are working with uh, Brown Rutnick and FTI Consulting. We'll see what happens uh, there. I guess well, one thing the company does have going for it um, is uh, some good liquidity. Uh, I think in the as of March second, um, we reported that they have three hundred sixty-four million of liquidity. So, uh, so maybe some time. Though that is an impressive streak of five years of decline in EBITDA. So we'll see what happens there. Um, Fusion Connect is uh, the next one um, wanted to, to talk about as a name that you had uh, picked up um, recently. Uh, Five hundred and thirty-nine million in total, um, or sorry, six hundred and sixty-six million in total debt. Um, six fifty-four of uh, net debt. Company is a uh, um, does cloud computing and internet uh, services. Uh, so why don't you tell us what's happening there? 
Yes, so we're going from retail to a TMT slash <laughs> services. So this company was having a lot of troubles. So it missed the principal payments on the first lien term loans. And that was an event of default and triggered a cross default on the second lien term loan. And Fusion also said it will breach covenants um, in Q4 last year and also in Q1 this year. It also said it won't be able to file the um, the uh, essentially the K for uh, 2018, the annual report on time, and that report will also have a going concern in it. Um, Fusion Connect also said, you know, there were accounting errors in, you know, in the financials in prior years. So a lot of troubles for this company. And also in uh, the company in April, uh, warned of Chapter 11 and, you know, uh, entered into forbearance with lenders. And we wrote in April that uh, the first lien lenders were, you know, considering um, a bridge financing uh, f- for the company to uh, and the parties, um, the creditors, uh, to have essentially have more time to negotiate. Um, and in, in May, the company uh, disclosed a $15 million bridge loan and said um, it will file for Chapter 11 uh, by June 3rd uh, in the Southern uh, District of New York uh, for a uh, 363 sale. The company said it will enter into a restructuring support agreement with uh, the first lien lenders, and the deadline to do that uh, has been uh, extended, I think, I believe, twice uh, to essentially as we are recording this um, podcast. As for advisors, the company has retained uh, FTI, PJT, and Wild Gotchall. Uh, Terminal agent Wilmington Trust is working with uh, APKS. A group of lenders is working with uh, Greenhill as FA and Davis Polk as counsel. Uh, the Trunch A term loans and revolver lenders are um, represented by um, Simpson uh, Thatcher. And the second lenders um, are working with uh, M3 Partners as financial advisor and Proskauer as uh, counsel. Great. Um, so as you said, that is a very timely event, and uh, we'll see what happens next there. Um, last, uh, and certainly not least, uh, Premier Global um, is the name you want to discuss. Uh, like you said, we're, we're in uh, TMT um, land right now. So Premier Global is a uh, provider of conferencing and collaboration software and services. Company has $748 million of, uh, of gross debt. And uh, Harvard, take it away. So this uh, credit came onto our radar um, because it reported a um, pre- pretty significant um, EBITDA drop in Q4, a 32, uh, 32% decline in Q4 adjusted EBITDA. It, uh, the company saw deterioration in its um, a legacy audio conferencing business and it's uh, struggling to kind of transition uh, its business model to you know a cloud-based uh, business. Uh, PGI faces a uh, the potential covenant breach in the third quarter of this year, and you know if you look at the capital structure, you know um, you know instead is starting to uh, mature in 2020. And uh, I think the lenders uh, we've reported the lenders have agreed uh, to waive unqualified audit for 2018 and the other uh, total leverage covenant for the second quarter ended um, June uh, ending June 30th. The company said uh, there's a substantial doubt about its ability to continue as an ongoing concern. I think, uh, and also the company has been uh, exploring uh, non-core asset sales, and also I uh, received a on uh, 20 million uh, in the form of new equity from uh, a sponsor series uh, capital group. The company has a um, announced a strategic plan uh, that includes um, transitioning business from um, automated conferencing to software as a service, um, and also launching uh, its unified communications as a service offering, which is uh, which the company says 
U.S. is on track to roll out in the U.S. market uh, in the second quarter and also expand uh, to the U.K. and Germany uh, in the second half of the year uh, as it uh, reviews uh, additional markets. So this is what hap- what's happening at um, Premier Global. Great, uh, thanks, and um, it's interesting. You know, certainly a pretty big uh, EBITDA decline, um, but uh, leverage is not uh, terrible for a software uh, company. So it's it's interesting and um, always a nice sign when the sponsor injects uh, a little bit more uh, cash into the business. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, thank you, Harvard. Um, appreciate uh, you giving us all these new names. Uh, we certainly have our plates full. And Karen. Back to you. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Karen Lund.